From the University of Kentucky, this is Long Story Short. American history is filled with exploration, heroes, and conflicts. When discussed, images might flash across your mind of the people who explored and occupied the New World, but rarely do we consider man's best friend to be an integral part of our history. Join Dara Vance and Cody Foster as they discuss the role that dogs played on the American frontier with Andrew Patrick. Um, so, who the heck are you? Um, my name's Andrew Patrick. I'm from Texas originally, but okay. my family's from, well, my dad's family, um, the Patricks are from Kentucky. So, when I graduated from high school, I got out of North Central Texas, because okay. it's a terrible place, you don't want to be there, um, and came to Center College, which is about 45 minutes south of here, it's a small liberal arts school. So there, I double majored in um, history and philosophy. Took a year off and worked oh, for the census. Oh, so you are really career-minded. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> it's all about the paycheck for me, right? My parents were, I'm sure, super happy with that. Did you, so you study Civil War? Um, well, I study kind of landscape history. Um, my dissertation is pre-settlement, so perusing the archaeological stuff before 1770, but then the narrative really takes off um, once people, um, once Americans start. Where are you looking? Eastern Seaboard? Um, no, Central Kentucky. Um, Kentucky? Yeah, so wow. it's a Kentucky project. Um, it's based on Fayette County and the contiguous counties. Okay. So it's trying to be as close as possible um, to the geological inner bluegrass so because it's subsoil that makes the differences in that environment. Right. I knew yeah. that they had special soil. Yeah. Yeah. But they also did some way they grow really great weed. But. Yeah, it's the lime, right. limestone, and then the calcium content is... So, yeah. what was in Kentucky in 1770? Um, it's basically a big hunting ground. It's a okay. shared use space, um, native groups from above the Ohio and below the Tennessee come in seasonally, so the Cherokee come in from the south, um, Shawnees, Delaware come in from the north. So it's basically, by that point, by the 1770s, it's not permanently occupied by Native Americans. Dogs, they're descended from wolves, they're sure. wild animals. It came out of the darkness. Came out of the darkness. Settled by the fire. Yep. And they served a purpose. Many purposes. So whether it was companionship or protection or hunting, um, their senses that are heightened. Mm -hmm. So what were these frontier dogs doing and how did they end up being war dogs? Um, they're doing a little bit of everything. And they become war dogs because they do everything. So in a war context, they're going to be used however they can be put to advantage. Um, and on both sides of this conflict, um, they're canines making valuable contributions, I would say. And you're, you're right to point out um, that there are companionship, so psychological issues, but there are also very practical physical issues um, that they're helping settlers address and helping um, natives try to address as well. So, so they're not just there for cuddling, like mine. I'm sitting there reading this morning, and mine is just laying there on my lap. That's not really right. happening. And then Martin, demanding to go out. That Ruby's like a wolf. Penny, Penny. I mean, Penny she is as right. lazy Penny's, as it gets, for sure. <laughs> yeah, you're like, your wolf is just about gone, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, there, there are those psychological um, aspects, and we can talk about those more. But the things that are very different in how they were using dogs 230 years ago in central Kentucky is those very practical uh, ways. Um, the difference, a dog could be the difference between life and death. Um, 
each morning as people are living in these stations, because it's a war zone, so you're living in fortified um, stations during 1770s, 1780s. So we're the, um, when you say war zone, you mean with Native Americans? Yes. Okay. So once it becomes obvious that this is a full-on settlement project, um, some groups of Natives um, become more uh, resistant and begin staging more frequent raids to try to drive these people Do they off. have dogs? Do the Native yes. Americans have dogs? Yes, they So do. the Native Americans have dogs and then the settlers have dogs. Yes. What... So let's stop here before we get too far into what they're doing. Okay, yeah. What do these dogs look like? What are they? Yeah, um, by our definitions today, they would be mutts. Uh, curs is the most common um, term applied to them that I've seen. So typically, these frontier dogs would be somewhere around 40 pounds, um, a little bit stocky. So basically, that's a medium-sized dog um, in our conceptions, I would think, today, my own medium-sized dog is 42 pounds, and I think of him as uh, kind of approximating these dogs. Um, so, mutts and multi-purpose mutts, um, but they would um, put forth some effort to try to breed um, lines from dogs that they like their personal attributes. So they're already breeding, purposeful, purposefully breeding in the Americas. I mean, obviously, purposeful yeah. breeding has been going on in other parts of the, right. of the world for a long time, but they're doing some limited purposeful breeding. Yeah, and it's it's not, um, say, a scientific regimen or anything like that. It's more, we're going to try to make sure that these live, and we're not going to care as much about these. All right, these. so these are good dogs, right. these dogs. Because are... their dad was awesome, or their mom okay. was this great hunting dog, so we think they're going to be good, too, that type of deal. So... What I picture at this time, of course, is Seaman, the big black Newfoundland, the travel mm -hmm. with Lewis and Clark, all the way across. I mean, he traveled the entire journey. That's a very famous dog. Yeah. Right, it is. Um, it's big, well, I mean, and that, was a, that was a native dog, too. Okay. Um, so they trade for that near the beginning of their journey. And he made the and entire he journey. The How valuable yeah, was that? Exactly. Was his line of... <laughs> and that's a, that's a very different um, dog than I think what was typical on the frontier. Okay. Well, I was going to say, wild dogs, not wild dogs in the sense of, um, like, you think of the wild dogs of Africa, but... Dogs that are, are mutts, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term, are typically medium-sized dogs. And a very interesting thing is they have curly tails. Mm. And I don't know where the curly tail comes yeah. from, but they're pretty kind of rough and scrabbly dogs with curly tails. Mm -hmm. And the main difference um, that I've been able to identify through the, the source records is that typically pioneers are calling Indian dogs little. So on some level, I think they're smaller than the Pioneer's dogs. Uh -huh. How much smaller that is, I'm not sure. But almost every time a Pioneer's talking about a native dog, uh, they call it little dog, blah, blah, blah. And that's n almost never a terminology that they're applying to their own dogs. Do you think that it was truly a size difference, or is there some sort of um, idea of supremacy? It, yeah. it could be um, both. It could be simply the supremacy. Um, but I, I tend to believe that there's something physical in their differences. Okay. Um, just the frequency with which I see that, that little word, um, I would think there would be some other demeaning phrases that they would be peppering in there if it was just about uh, our dogs are good and those dogs are kind of terrible. Okay. So here you are standing on the frontier with your dog. What's your dog doing for you? Okay, so it depends on the time of day. Okay. Could be. So first thing in the morning, you're coming out of your fortified um, station first member of your family that's going outside is the dog. Um, he's going to sniff around the perimeter, make sure nobody's lying in wait. So he's your first barrier of defense in the morning. He's, so he's the sentry. He's, he's the sentry. He's nice. the sentry. So that's if you're in 
um, kind of a fortified station, so you've been there a while, you've set up, you're feeling pretty secure. If you're out on a hunting trip, he's even more important, she's even more important as a sentry, uh, because there aren't those walls to protect you. So the only thing besides your own ears that's going to alert you to somebody approaching is that dog barking. So this happens a lot. Um, and perhaps that's annoying if you camp with a dog, like they do bark at a lot of stuff, yeah. often a raccoon when it's supposed to be a bear or something. Um, but it was a worthwhile trade-off, certainly, because they're never going out without their dogs. The three things that any hunter in this early period of Kentucky history has is a horse, a gun, and a dog. Um, typically more than one dog. Um, say when Daniel Boone is on his long hunts by himself, he'll take three dogs with him. And that's something you see in paintings, too, today. Absolutely. You go to museums, you see Absolutely. paintings, you see the frontiersman, you see a dog, you see a rifle, and uh, a horse. But I mean, that's common. Yeah. And we're also talking about this being a time of warfare, and we see those three combinations of dog, gun, and horse up through World War I. Mm -hmm. so, and I think some places you would see it today. They're out hunting, sure. using that same... Um, well, hunting, well, I've got a good buddy yeah. who does... Um, uh, oh, yeah, the war context. He's okay. in right. um, you know, Greenland doing uh, Arctic studies, mm -hmm. and the thing he takes with him every time is a rifle and a dog, every yep. time, to protect him from polar bears. I mean, it's, it's still common practice today. Right. We can't bring our dog here into the history office, of course, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I was talking about specifically right. on the um, official military front, that even into World War One, we see the combination of horses as a war animal, dogs as a war animal, and then mm -hmm. obviously the use of a gun. So this mm -hmm. becomes a kind of standardized combination. Yes, and I would note that it's not something that originates in central Kentucky or anything like that. This right. is the way Daniel Boone was hunting in western Pennsylvania as well. Sure. Um, so he's bringing those um, tactics west with him. Um, yeah, and it's, so in the morning he's your sentry. If you go out hunting, he's your sentry. He's also helping you track. Um, most of these dogs, at least from what I've gathered, are generalists, so you'll take the same three dogs, same five dogs when you're hunting bear as you would when you're hunting elk. Um, but some develop reputations for particular types of game. Uh, I came across one dog that becomes famous and celebrated as a bear hunter. So the first time they took him out hunting bear, um, he made the mistake of jumping on the bear's head, and he got swatted off and rolled down a hill. Um, they killed the bear, said it was tasty. Um, checked on the dog, decided he was basically dead, and left him for dead. Um, two days later, he wanders into the station, and after that, evidently, he was a pro at hunting bears. He knew exactly the approach, he never went at the face, always went at the, the hindquarters, which would make the bear turn, and then the hunters could shoot him. So after that, everyone in that station, um, everyone in that settlement, when they are going out bear hunting, would take this dog. So he was no longer called Little Dog at that right. point. He's, he's, he's Big Bear Dog, dog. Yeah, <laughs> something like that, right? So, so you're alluding to some really interesting ideas that there becomes a hunting partnership. Mm -hmm. The the dog dogs would not typically hunt bear. Right. No. So there's obviously some level. Well, I shouldn't say obviously. Is there some level of training? How does that partnership develop, in which? Uh, hunters and dogs can work in this sort of symbiotic relationship? It's um, something that emerges out of deep history, I think. This um, interspecies companionship and, I guess, alliance um, in these regards. Like I said, it's something that comes with the hunters. They're not um, creating it here. And I wish I, had, I was able to unearth more sources on that training aspect. Thus far, I haven't seen much. Um, so I think it's probably a case in which you're 
uh, raising pups via immersion in a pack of previously trained dogs. So helping um, trained dogs by an example of their peers. Um, so you take up one dog with four experienced dogs or something like that. So do you think, and this is conjecture on your part, or perhaps you've found some um, research about this, do you think that dogs in some way consider the humans to be part of their pack or they're part of the human pack or there's some sort of inclusion of this pack? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I'm no expert on kind of dog psychology, but I think um, if you peruse the literature much at all, that's the okay. general consensus is that's the way um, we were able to incorporate them in our communities is those are pack animals they have a natural hierarchy so we supplant the top of that hierarchy so then because they're social animals they want to make that being on top of the, the pyramid happy so we just supplant uh, the pack leader there so then so there's some com complicated psychology going on as oh well. there's complicated psychology going on on I'd say both species part um, it's such a long-standing relationship um, you know, you get into brain chemistry issues. Petting a dog releases the same endorphins as touching a baby. Really? Yeah. It's, yeah, they're very important. Well, no, um, why you and your wife just got a dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's an incredibly interesting relationship, and I think zeroing in on it in one particular kind of historical context helps you see all of these things that we kind of take for granted today. Like, why does my dog listen to me when he chooses to? Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. because he thinks at that moment, like, I'm his pack leader. Yeah. So you've talked to us a lot about uh, dogs being helpful. And I love the idea of sending out the sentry in the morning because mm -hmm. then I think about people today sending their dog outside into the yard. Well, yeah, I send mm -hmm. out my sentry every morning, but all she wants to do is pee and then come back inside where it's nice and comfortable and there's air conditioning. She's not really protecting me so much. Yeah, well, <laughs> my sentry makes sure there are no squirrels in my backyard. That's right. That's right. Good. Run them off. Can't, <laughs> yeah, can't have right. any acorns. So aside from acting as the sentry in hunting, what was their specific role in warfare? Yeah, I want to know when we come across, uh, uh, say, a Native American tribe mm -hmm. or uh, some other settlers that we disagree with or your village is being raised to the ground, um, yeah. what's the dog doing in that moment? Um, the dog probably helped you find them, first of all. So you're in this vast landscape, very few people relatively, so to find your enemies, you're often going to be following a dog. Um, so he's a tracker, and that goes if you're tracking a bear or you're tracking a hunting party. Um, there are examples of, um, say, a settlement being attacked, people being kidnapped, and then they track them down with dogs and eventually rescue those folks. So that's a, a, a vital role that rescue probably would not have occurred without the dogs, that type of thing. So did they, were they aware of the science of tracking at that point, or was it just sort of known that dogs will do this and... Yeah. And... Uh, not, say, scientifically aware, I would say, but everyone is very aware that dogs have a heightened sense of smell compared okay. to uh, humans. So this is really a hunting skill. They're just hunting human prey. And it's um, almost like a, an early version of intelligence or counterintelligence or um, even drones. When we were thinking about this idea, we were thinking about dogs versus drones and absolutely. which one is still, you know, which one is better. Right. right. I'm thinking uh, your dogs are doing recon for you. So yeah, recon. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It's doing recon for you. Um, one thing I would say, so it's, it's great in that regard. It helps you find your um, stolen children, perhaps. Um, but everyone involved in this conflict knows how the other side is using dogs. So, 
natives could use this relationship against the settlers too. So often, I found several examples, um, they would drive livestock off knowing that the dog would then lead the settlers out there and then lay in wait and ambush. So that's an easier way to get uh, people on your um, terms, uh, get them in your environment that you want to have this fight go down in. Um, so yes, it's offering benefits, but you got to be careful about how you're using them. You can't take it um, as a foolproof method. Um, so they were actually, dogs were part of a war strategy. Absolutely and were used very strategically either in an offense or a defense and also to deflect yeah. and You not distract. only had to incorporate it into your personal strategy, but you also had to think how the enemy was going to use dogs mm -hmm. against Absolutely. me and plan yeah. for that. I mean, yeah. dogs seemed so central to this early version of combat. They were. I think they, I think they certainly were. Um, there's another good example. Um, Daniel Boone and his brother Edward were out hunting. It was just the two of them. Um, and they get ambushed by a raiding party of Shawnee. Um, Edward's killed instantly. Daniel gets away. He's running off. But he's tracked by a little yapping dog um, sent by the Indians. So he gets into a cane break, which is really super dense vegetation. He's thinking he can hide there. Can't get away from the dog. Has to flee out of there again. So eventually he ends up shooting the dog. Um, in the record, it seems like he's somewhat uh, sad about this, that he has to shoot the dog. Um, and then he makes his escape. But as he's making his escape, um, the Indians arrive on the dog's corpse. And he can hear and he describes um, them wailing. And it's very an emotional type of scene that he's describing there, um, which I think hints, again, at similarities in kind of these psychological aspects. There is a relationship here on both sides. Um, you know, there's psychological pain when your dog dies. That's something we feel today. Uh, it's something that both sides of this conflict felt then as well, I think. So... We hope to talk uh, to service vets, yes. uh, service dogs with vets soon too. And so what I'm seeing here uh, in what you're saying is that there's a certain level of trust between Absolutely. the person and the dog. So when a dog dies, how easy is it for uh, this frontiersman to you know, get another dog, to go and just buy another dog? Um, probably pretty easy. Yeah. There are quite a few dogs on the frontier. Um, there's, they're not fixing the dogs or anything, right? So right. they're multiplying sure. rapidly. Um, and it would depend on the dog in terms of how easy it is to kind of move past it. Um, that very famous bull, uh, bear hunting dog yeah. probably would have left a bigger hole than just one of the four dogs and the rest of the Well, because you initially like started that. that story by saying that he went down the side of the mountain and they were going to leave him. They were going to leave him, yeah. But at that point he hadn't proved himself. Right. So Then he shows his character and his worth and yeah, then he becomes so a valuable member. In all of this, and you've talked about um, different types of value for hunting and for skins and for land, does there become a dog trade? Does there become a, a um, actual market for dogs? Um, there is a limited market for dogs, from what I can gather in Wood uh, Venture. Um, and it's for dogs with, uh, say, personally admirable characteristics or something like that. Um, you might be able to um, sell the Newfoundland or something like that, um, but just a standard run-of-the-mill um, dog would not likely drive prices high or something like that. Um, I don't think it's the same type of market as emerges for horses or for cattle or for sheep or something like that uh, because they're viewed kind of as a more broadly utilitarian thing. The... Um, 
individual characteristics of dogs are less valuable than the individual characteristics of a horse or something like that. What about that one bear dog? How valuable is he in the community? I mean, would, would people try to steal other people's dogs if it was, if it had proved its worth? Um, could be. They might be uh, branded or marked. They might mark an ear or something like that. If it was a dog they want to make sure that they keep a hold of, probably that dog was marked. Um, but I would imagine, certainly, that that kind of thing is happening. You know, there's a lot of livestock theft, and this would be a pretty easy animal to steal so yeah i would imagine that's that's occurring um so as it kind of come to the close of the um interview here so we've talked a lot about some very endemic and identifiable traits of kentucky we've talked about horses we've talked about landscape we've talked about agriculture and land and hunting and now dogs Mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about that enduring legacy of the frontier dog in kentucky yeah, it's, it's something that I feel like we've lost a little bit. Our dogs are so much our friends that we sometimes forget that this is a practical relationship, too. Um, we celebrate our connection with horses. We celebrate our connection to bluegrass. Um, horse uh, Dogs fall out of that narrative, I think. Uh, but they were important pieces of that um, overall development, important to the outcome of the conflict. But we have such a everyday relationship with our dogs that I think it's hard to remember that. Um, we see a great gap between our dogs and Daniel Boone's dogs. But it's not necessarily that great a gap. It's more in the environment that we're placing them in and then what we're asking them to do. Um, dogs continue to play a very important role. Um, it's just more in our heads and less out in the physical world around us. Um, so I think there's a legacy there, and it's something that we maybe could do a better job of fully appreciating kind of the richness of this relationship and how much dogs have done for us. I mean, when we take the dog to the vet and we see the bill, we know how much we're doing for them. But they have done something for us as well. Sounds like you're ready to speak to the Fraser Arms Museum and set yeah. up your own exhibition. <laughs> so there's a case, Jonathan Jennings, he's a pioneer um, settling in central Kentucky in the 1780s. And he's out hunting on his own um, with his dogs. Well, just with one dog, actually. And he gets um, ambushed, shot, scalped, left for dead. His dog stays with him, licks his scalp for several days, and then eventually Jennings gets up and staggers back into the fort. And he attributes his survival to this dog. Now, he doesn't know anything about the mild antibacterial properties of dog saliva. He knows nothing about that. But he knows that his friend stayed with him when he was near death, and he lived because of it. So he lives the rest of his life as a bald man. But he's alive, and he attributes that to the dog. So I think the question, would you rather have a dog or a drone, it depends on the circumstance. The drone's not licking your scalp in that period. You know That psychological component of this relationship is so key, and it enables um, all those physical components, those physical benefits that we both, both species, um, draw from the relationship. Dogs in our culture today are considered to be cuddly house pets, loved by all. It's not often that we hold these creatures up as heroic. Next, the Long Story Short team talks with Bill Needle about some of the heroic canines of World War I. So, 
we have asked you to come and talk to Long Story Short to tell us about dogs, dogs of war. So you um, have graciously offered to talk to us about World War I dogs. So let's start off to kind of talking about the scope of dogs in the war. Why were dogs used in World War I, which some people argue is maybe the first modern war that's been fought. And so I know horses were still used in World War I, but what was the role of dogs on the battlefield and were they used on the battlefield? What was going on with dogs? Well, while historians might feel that the first modern war was World War I, it was probably the end of the earlier period of warfare because after World War I, dogs were used in lesser and lesser and lesser roles, although the roles never really expanded. In World War I, dogs were used for any number of reasons, in, and they were the same uh, as they were in wars prior, and that includes things like sentry duty, scouting, attack dogs, uh, communications, running messages like that, and uh, there's a lot of things that dogs did prior to World War I that because of technological advances they may not have done as much in World War II, Korea, and so on and so forth. Okay, so when we think about dogs and dogs in war, we might think about uh, German, German shepherds or the Belgian Malinois to be uh, used in World War II, but what, what dogs were being used in World War One? What were they doing? Well, German shepherds got their greatest boost in terms of popularity because of what happened in World War One. But the biggest war heroes in World War One were not German shepherds. The biggest Hollywood heroes in World War One were German shepherds. But the biggest hero in the American forces in, in World War One was a Boston Terrier, Sergeant Stubby. Sergeant Stubby was found in a very bright dog, fortunately, and not coincidentally, found on the campus of Yale University. And he was smuggled overseas by the uh, infantryman who found him. He became the mascot of the 102nd Infantry, but he was far more than a mascot. He was in 18 battles, and he was wounded. He was gassed to the point where he was given a little Boston Terrier-sized gas mask while he was working with the 102nd Infantry. But his role was, was far more than just a mascot. Because of his dog hearing, he could hear shells before the soldiers could hear them. He could sense gas before the soldiers could sense it. And he could locate wounded warriors before the soldiers could. So he was a hero. He was promoted to sergeant. He was Sergeant Stubby, and it wasn't just a nickname. He was promoted to sergeant, and he was even taught to salute rather than shake hands in the normal dog style. He was taught to raise his paw to his forehead and salute superior officers. So was he, you said he was smuggled. Was he in a, operating in an official capacity? Did the, did the armed forces know he was there? Did they want him there, or, or was this something that the men were doing? The men adopted him, and the the officials of the armed services accepted him because after a while he became very valuable. Well, right, you're describing these roles that even that now in uh, the war on terror and at the airport and the NSA they use dogs for very similar roles for their hearing and for their sight and for their um, ability, their heightened uh, uh, ability to sniff out chemicals and drugs. So it sounds like. A hundred years ago, he sort of fell into that role, perhaps 
accidentally. Well, it may be into the role, but he certainly did bring a lot of stuff to the role. I mean, he brought his hearing, he brought his sense of smell, he brought his intelligence to the role. So Sergeant Stubby was decorated, given medals, There's there are various monuments to him, and he was the most decorated, and he was a sergeant, but in World War One there was another one called Rags. And Rags was a terrier. He wasn't a German shepherd. Rags was great. Rags watched enough of his cohorts in, and he was a member of the 1st Infantry, and I say it literally, he was a member of the 1st Infantry. He watched his cohorts hit the ground, hug the earth whenever a shell came. Rags learned that this is what you do. So when Rags heard the whine of the shells coming before they hit, he would hit the ground and the soldiers watched Rags hit the ground and they knew it was up to them to then hit the ground the way Rags did. So these dogs were acting as sort of a, uh, like an early warning mechanism. Absolutely. And, and, and they were just as smart as the soldiers, if not smarter. Rags was also taught to salute. Um, he was, his physical ability, he was able to run messages from the front back to the command, from the command to the front. And he was, he was a, a courier dog, but one of my more favorite aspects about Rags was that when he was repatriated and brought back to the United States after World War I, Rags found on the base where he was the best mess halls. And he would go to the best places to eat, knowing that as a war hero he would be fed quite well. Now, Rags and Stubby never got the acclaim that the German shepherds did after World War I. There was the first of the great ones was Strongheart, who was a German shepherd that was a police dog in Germany, was brought to the United States by his handlers, and then became a movie star. He became a movie star in the silent films long before Rin Tin Tin. And after Strongheart, then came Rin Tin Tin. His legacy continues. His fourth or fifth or sixth generations are still being bred to help in service. Rin Tin Tin uh, was in 27 movies, had a TV show, had a radio show. And the best story about Rin Tin Tin, in 1929, the first year of the Academy Awards, the legend has it that he got the most votes for best actor. But because the Academy of Arts and Sciences was so interested in establishing themselves as movie authority in these early days, they couldn't give it to a dog. They figured if they gave it to a German Shepherd, it would demean the award. They gave it to Emil Jannings instead, and Rin Tin Tin was the guy who never really got the Oscar but deserved it. So you've talked to us about these two German Shepherds uh, going forward um, from their military careers to become actors. What do you think there's any connection between sort of um, um, recovering, I guess, the relationship with Germany, uh, perceptions of Germany, and these dogs being German shepherds? Do you think that given the German, the size of the American German population at the time, that had any connection to their popularity in Hollywood? Well, I'm not sure that it did because if you remember during World War I, anything that had the slightest German tinge to it was actually refuted. I mean, cab, you know, uh, sauerkraut became Liberty Cabbage, and anything with a German tinge to it was immediately Americanized. But what the German shepherds like Rin Tin Tin and Strongheart did was they led to a great deal of popularity of the breed. 
after World War I in the United States. And now, as years have gone on, they're credited with great intelligence. They've proven to have great intelligence. But I don't think that the, the connection was German so much. Uh, the, the connection, as far as Rin Tin Tin goes, was far more economics. He was credited with saving Warner Brothers. It was the Rin Tin Tin movies that led to the popularity of Warner Brothers films. And he's call, he was called the K-9 mortgage lifter. Because he got, he got Warner Brothers out of Dutch. I just find it interesting that, uh, as you're saying, sauerkraut and other um, sort of iconic German items were rejected or renamed, whereas the German Shepherd was embraced. The German Shepherd was embraced, and I think that I don't, I don't, I'm unaware of a connection or uh, an antipathy toward a German Shepherd because these are heroic dogs. I mean, you know, you talk about the emerging power of the modern media to see Strongheart in action as White Fang or doing heroic things on the film, the impact that the cinema was making during the silent era and the growing impact that the cinema made as the 1920s unfolded led to a great deal of popularizing and, and in, in hand diminishing the stigma of being a German breed. Uh, Renton Tin himself has a very dramatic story sort of made-for-Hollywood story. Can you tell us a little bit more about his story on the battlefield and, and sort of how he was, quote-unquote, discovered? Well, Lee Duncan was the American soldier who discovered Rin Tin Tin, and he, too, was brought back to the United States after the war. He was discovered on a battlefield in 1918. Uh, Lee Duncan was essentially a stage father of a German shepherd. He went throughout Hollywood trying to get this dog jobs in the the emerging movie theater uh, the emerging movie industry and he got it he got it he he was in 27 movies and he died uh, leaving Rintintin Jr. in the third and the fourth and it led to he became the classic Hollywood dog before Lassie before what was he doing on the battlefield uh, dogs were a part of communications, as I had said earlier, okay. running messages back and forth to the front lines, using their their innate physical but characteristics. But he was a, he was from the German side, is that right? Or uh, he, he might have been. I, I there I have not come across an answer to that question. Okay, but he was somewhere on the battlefield. He was on the battlefield. And Lee Duncan said, "I'm taking this dog." And he did. Interesting. So. There must be some psychological or emotional impact of these dogs as well. They weren't simply just a um, a war resource. No, they're obviously, they're, they're man's best friends. They're, yeah, they're they're everything that we think that they are. They're loyal. They're obedient. They can be trained. They're selfless. Uh, you know, they talk about either being a dog person or a cat person. Imagine trying to get your pet cat to do the things that Sergeant Stubby or Rags did in in combat, or what Strongheart and Rin Tin Tin did in, under the camera lights. Speaking of the camera lights, that's how Strongheart died. He bumped into a, one of those hot movie lights, caused a tumor, led to his death. Oh. Yeah, that's how Strongheart died. So the men must have also, I mean, they don't need to teach the dog how to salute. It's obviously very quaint, very cute, and makes for a great story, and it's a, a nice uh, trick that he can do. But so it must have emotionally uh, been a nice support mechanism for the men as well. When you're scared to death in a muddy trench, what better resource to have than something that'll come up and cuddle with you, 
something that'll lick your face, something that'll remind you of home, something that will make you feel as though you're in control of something. I mean, face it, I, never having been in combat, I can't swear to this, but one would imagine that in combat you feel as though you're always on edge, you're never in control, you never know what's going to happen, but you know that when you're interacting with the mascot, you've got somebody who is your loyal friend. So these dogs were acting not only um, in the support mechanism of their role as soldiers, but also emotional support animals in much the way that we use them today. Absolutely. And, and they, they exhibited a number of talents. I mean, Sergeant Stubby became the mascot of Georgetown University's football team. At halftime in the 19, let's see, Stubby died in the 20s, but in the halftime of the Georgetown football games, they put Stubby on the field. He was a very well-known dog. He was famous, and it was Washington, D.C. Give him a football, and Stubby would push the football around the football field at halftime instead of having the marching band spell out Georgetown or whatever they would spell out. So Stubby, Stubby is memorialized. There are four books written about Stubby. There are various monuments to Stubby's heroism. Stubby even captured a German, and you'd think it was a cartoon, but it was real life. Stubby captured a German by biting his pants and holding on to him and growling until the German spy was apprehended by the American forces. Wow. Wow. So um, I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Is there any other last parting words about dogs and war that you want us to know? Well, they, they were heroic. When they're, either when they're in the movies, they're playing heroic roles. When they're in combat, they are heroes. When you think about how dogs have been portrayed by the media over the years, they're a little bit less heroic. They're, they're more, more cuddly. They're, more, they're, they're people in furry coats. And, and the thing with, the, and there's a difference between the way dogs are portrayed now and the way dogs were portrayed during World War I and the decade or so afterward. They were really heroes. They were man's best friend. They were not a reason to go see the latest Disney movie. So dogs were, a night, uh, they were acting as a, uh, potentially a connection to this cult of masculinity as well. Ah, that's, a, that's very fair. I think it's very fair. It's it's definitely a manly, manly animal. Because you're saying man's best friend, and um, I I think you've raised a great point. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you for your time and for telling us a little more about dogs in war. I loved it. Long story short, we'd like to thank Andrew Patrick and Bill Needle for talking with us today. Long Story Short is a joint production between the Department of History and the College of Arts and Sciences Hive. Today's episode was produced by Dara Vance and Cody Foster and hosted by myself, Mason Passamonti. As always, thank you for listening.